Baptist Church, First Baptist Church in Gooseland. And uh, he did really a, a very good job. And I think he's one of the long line of, of preachers that have been called out of this church. And right now he's, I think he's trying to find his way how to get into that full time. And it's difficult when you have a family. When you have a wife and children, that complicates everything. If you're single and uh, you can run on off to seminary or whatever you can do if you have the funds, it gets a little difficult when you when you get to the uh, fact that you have a family. And I and I've been there and I was there and uh, I understand where you are, Kenneth. But I, Kenny, I fully believe though you do have a call on your life uh, to preach the gospel. Uh, he did an excellent job this morning, by the way. And. I've really not spent any time around Kenny other than here in the hallways and stuff. So I don't have any stories I can tell on him. I wish I did. And I'm not going to ask you because that might take all the time. So, But Kenny's been here a long time. How many years, Kenny? You know, a long time since he was a little guy? 06. All right. So he's been here a while. And he's 32 or 3, somewhere around there. All right. Yeah. All right. Anyway, what I'm doing here is introducing Kenny the best I can. And I felt he did such a wonderful job this morning. I want you to know how hard it is for a preacher to turn down an opportunity to preach. But I felt like God wanted me to do that this morning. So not only did I ask him to come for the 8.30 service, but I asked him if he'd stay and and, uh, bring a message to you at this service. And uh, he said, yeah. And I I remember when I first asked him, what, a couple weeks ago, whatever it was, he said, you mean here? I said, no, at that other church I got, Kenny. Uh, yes, here. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing from you again. All right? God bless you, brother. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Yeah, I've told a couple people. You know, I've had the, uh, been blessed to have the privilege to get to preach, you know, at a, a number of different churches, you know, all over. And I said I was a little bit more nervous about this morning than I have about any of those other ones, because there you can show up, say what you want, and then get in your car and get out of there. You know, I know you guys. So, um, but I do know that, uh, you know, it's no small thing for a pastor to uh, give up the pulpit, you know. Um, so I do thank you, Roger and, um, and Brad. I guess I'm third string, right? So, um, <laughs> uh, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 6. And we're going to be uh, starting at verse 22, and we're going to uh, read through to the end of the chapter. John chapter 6, starting at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we have one great need and that is to see and to cherish and to feast on you. Father, we cannot do that seeing and that cherishing and that feeding without your Spirit. And so, as we look at your Word, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would move to reveal your Son as precious and worthy to us this morning. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So, this, uh, let me just say this from the outset, that this passage of Scripture is, is pregnant with, with rich and glorious truths, and we cannot plumb the depths of it in one sermon. We could probably do a conference on this passage. So, but what I want to do this morning is highlight what I see in this text. First, two observations, and then two questions that come from there. Two observations. The first observation is when Jesus says he is the true bread, he is showing his supremacy in giving life, joy, and satisfaction over any other thing. Now, Jesus has this encounter and he says these words and he's fresh off the miracle of feeding the 5,000 where he multiplied the loaves and all who had gathered 5,000 plus uh, were fed and satisfied. And so the crowd finds him again later and they they ask him about this. And you can see that they're already making the connection. The last time such a miraculous feeding took place that they know of was when their fathers, the children of Israel, were fed by God by the manna in the desert. You can see that when they say, What sign then do you do that we may see and believe you? Like he didn't just feed 5,000 people, right? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, it was not Moses, but my father. And here is something better than the manna in the desert. Here is the true bread from heaven. He said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Later in verse 40, 58, he said that he was not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. And their response to this, when he says to them, Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. That should kind of ring a bell, that kind of response to Jesus saying these things. It kind of ring a bell. If you go back two, three chapters, chapter four of John, 
when Jesus has his encounter with the woman at the well. If you look back at John chapter 4, verse 7. Where it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away from the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you would Jew ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is, asking, is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Mark this, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him like a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You see the similarities in that response. When in speaking with Jesus, they're referencing the manna and they're referencing the water from the well. And Jesus draws attention to himself and says, I am the true bread, or I am the living water. And he speaks of things deeper and that satisfy, unlike the water that you drink and will go thirsty again, or the manna in the wilderness that they had to collect every morning and never fully stated their appetites. And then they ate and died. I think in when Jesus makes these parallels. He's speaking to the finality of the satisfaction that he brings. To the woman in the well, he says, you can drink this water and you're just going to have to keep drinking because you'll be thirsty again. I am the living water. Whoever drinks of me will never be thirsty again. To the crowd that had gathered, he says, I am the true bread from heaven. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But I am the living bread and will truly bring life and satisfaction. This idea of temporal satisfaction versus eternal satisfaction gets at the very core of the gospel. That being that each and every one of us were created to worship. We are created for a seeking out of soul satisfaction, namely to be found in our Creator. The very sin is finding that soul satisfaction in lesser things. We were created for the worship, and for the worshiping of lesser things is our sin. The chief difference between the water in the well and the bread and the manna in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, is that though they could bring life, Jesus is pointing out that they could not save. He says, I am the true bread from heaven. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So I believe Jesus is pointing out here from the outset 
a contrast between that which truly satisfies and brings life and that which is temporal and cannot satisfy. The pursuit of lesser things will only leave us wanting more and cannot ultimately bring us the satisfaction and the glory that our souls long for that is to be found in God. Second observation. When Jesus says he's the bread of life, he's showing that he makes available life, joy, and satisfaction with the Father. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now, let's stop right there. Why do I keep saying life and joy? But I keep talking about desires and satisfaction. And, and I mean, that's not in the text, right? Isn't it kind of superficial to be speaking of joy? Isn't that selfish? The main reason I keep bringing up joy is because the eternal life that Jesus provides is not simply the perpetuation of existence, but a connection to the fellowship of the Godhead and all the fullness of that union. Now, I think, I think we can see this. I think we can make this connection here if we look over at what John says when he writes to the church in 1 John chapter 1. If you want to flip there with me. First John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, John writes, that, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Do you see that the connection there, this between this seeing and fellowshipping? When we look back at John chapter 6, look at what he says. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks in my blood, verse 56, abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. As the living bread, the eternal life that Jesus offers is not simply the continuation of existence, but a union into the very fellowship and joy that is found within the fullness of the Trinity. Jesus reveals to us and brings us to the Father, and in doing so connects us to the fellowship of the Father and the joy that is had in the Father and in the Son. The pleasure that God had for His Son is shared and all who feast on him. And we saw that, I think, when John, writing to the church, talked about the manifestation of Jesus. He said this life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we touched it, 
And now we have fellowship with God. And in that fellowship is the fullness and joy that is found in the Trinity. This is what Jesus, as the living bread, provides for us in the eternal life that is found in feasting on him. You know, I I mentioned this in first service. When I was a kid, you know, eternity sounded kind of uh, intimidating, right? You know, like, isn't that going to be boring? Was it the Tom and Jerry cartoons where they die and they go to heaven and they sit in the cloud and pluck the harp? We're talking about fellowship for eternity and the joy that is experienced between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of the Trinity. That is what Jesus offers as the living bread. That is what he has come to do in revealing the Father to us. John Piper, I think, is helpful in this. Let me, let me share this with you. The happiness of God is first and foremost a happiness in his Son. Thus, when we share in the happiness of God, we share in the very pleasure that the Father has in the Son. This is why Jesus made the Father known to us. At the end of the great prayer of John 17, he said to his Father, I make known to them your name, and I will make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. He made God known so that God's pleasure in his Son might be in us and become our pleasure. Forget about boring. Fellowship and joy with God for eternity. Forget about the pursuit of lesser joys. Jesus offers eternity with the pleasures of God. Now that brings up our two questions. The first is, what is the meaning by this feasting on Jesus? Because you have to admit, that's a little ambiguous, right? I mean, Jesus was all the time really good at, at hitting at these spiritual truths with very confounding language. Like when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was like, how does that happen? You know, he's like, I know my mom. She's not going to be up for that. (laughs) And then here when he says to them, you want to know God? You want to do the work of God? You have to believe in him who God sent. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So what is meant by feasting on Jesus? I think this is partaking language. This is savoring language. David used this language. David, in his speaking and the cry of his heart for the Lord and for the word and for the law, he used this language. Psalm 34, when he says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, 
but those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's, that's savoring. That's not sampling. Like when you go to Sam's Club and the woman stands with the tray with the toothpicks, right? And you, you, know, you take it. Oh, yeah, that's pretty good. If you can wait long enough, you can come back and grab another one before they catch on. That's sampling. Jesus isn't saying, sample me. Jesus is saying, feast on me. I am the living bread. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's banking on Jesus. That's feasting on Jesus. That's forsaking the lesser things that we've seen can bring no joy and banking and feasting on Him who provides eternal joy with the Father. So one more question under this question is what does that look like? Because it's still a little ambiguous, right? I mean, we're still kind of, okay, you know. And I think Peter displays this in our, in our passage of Scripture. If you look at Peter, he shows what tasting and seeing is. You see that as Jesus was kind of amping up the, the, the illustration, he said, I'm the true bread. And they said, what do you mean that you're the true bread? And he says, you have to feast on me. And they said, what do you mean you have to feast on me? And then he really just kind of hit it home and said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, otherwise you have no life. And that did not go over well. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, well, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Right? I mean, who can bear it? They said, well, time out. You crossed the line. This is too much. Who can stand to listen to this kind of talk? We know who you are, the son of Joseph and Mary. And now you're talking about coming down from heaven and eating and drinking your blood. This is too much. And even his disciples left. And Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to leave too? What's your reaction to this? Everyone else is gone. And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. That is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That is feasting and savoring on Jesus. When everyone else rejects him, and everyone else leaves and everyone else is pursuing every other thing that the world can try to offer for your joy. And your response is, where else would we go? You have the words of life. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is tasting and seeing. That is feasting on God. It's not dutiful ritual. 
savoring. Now, we still have to ask then our next question. So we've seen what that looks like. We've seen how when Jesus says that he's the true bread, he's the living bread, he's the living water, he truly satisfied. You were created for joy. You were created for worship. You were created to behold glory. But where everything went wrong was you worshipped the wrong things. Adam worshipped the wrong thing when he partook of the fruit. Paul says that in Romans that mankind exchanges the glory for lesser glory when they carve for themselves images of stone and wood. And you and I exchange the glory of God for every trivial thing that we use to pursue, to find joy and satisfaction, everything from our families to our careers, to football and Netflix, and whatever it else is that we seek to satisfy ourselves, whatever else it is that we're partaking in. And we've seen then that how God, as the living bread, Jesus provides life with the Father, and not just life, but eternal life of joy and pleasure and fellowship with the Trinity. And we've seen that that looks like savoring Jesus over everything else that the world could hope and try to offer. So that when you're the only one left standing, you say, where else would we go? We have to ask, how is this bread made available to us? How has this bread come to us? Because here's the thing, part of our sin of chasing lesser things over the glory of God, wrapped up in that is also our inability to see God as worthy of our pursuit. See, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's a nature. It's a nature to exchange the glory of God, to forsake living bread for manna that will ultimately leave you dead. So how is this living bread? How can we see? How can we have Peter's response? Where else would we go? You have life. If our very nature drives us towards this exchange. And the answer to that is first of all by the sovereign grace of God. We can't see God. That life that was made manifest that John talked about in 1 John chapter 1, that that the disciples were able to testify to, we've seen it, we've touched it, it's been made known to us, and now we have fellowship with God. That doesn't happen by bucking up. You can't muster that. You can't go from pursuing the world to then making a career move to pursuing God. 
Something radical and supernatural has to happen. Something transformative has to happen to take a sinner who would reject God and say, this is too much. I'm drawing the line. I'm going my own way. To someone who can taste and see that the Lord is good and will take refuge in him. There's a heart of stone that has to be removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. And you and I are incapable of that feat. We need the supernatural work of God who by his spirit will open the eyes of our hearts so that Jesus goes from being repulsive to being glorious. That's why there's no swagger in the Christian life. That's why Paul said there's no boasting. You want to boast in something? Boast on God. The only thing you have, the only thing you and I have to boast in is the fact that we were wretched sinners that God saved. It was either Jonathan Edwards or John Owen. I want to say it was Jonathan Edwards. And this is what happens when you kind of pull quotes out of thin air. You can't get the said, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. There's no swagger. We couldn't see him. We, we couldn't taste and see that the Lord is good. We didn't want to taste and see. We we're tasting other things. Without a supernatural work of God in our lives, we cannot savor the beauty and the worth of Christ. Which that still then leads. See, we're, we're kind of unpacking this question. Like there's little boxes that you open one up and there's another box and you open up and you finally get to the treasure. Okay, so how, how do we partake of the bread of life? By the sovereign work of God. Okay, how then is that sovereign work of God to have been made available to sinners? How is God both able to be just and the justifier by doing a supernatural work on behalf of his enemies, those who would reject him and regard him as repugnant in order that they can see and partake of his glory and be counted with the fellowship of his son. And the answer there is the cross of Christ. We see it when Jesus says in 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, Jesus is speaking in spiritual language. When he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. There's a spiritual, we're dealing with matters of the heart. But there is a very real physical reality in literal sense to his body as bread. And his blood actually were spilt on our behalf. Where on the cross, Jesus, who lived where he said his very food was to do the will of God. And enjoyed perfect joy and fellowship with God from all eternity. 
was treated as the one who rejected God and pursued the glory of lesser things so that it would be made available to us to see and savor the beauty of God. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. He took those who would reject the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that couldn't even hold water and treated him like that. So that we could have the righteousness of God. That is how this is able to be made available to us. That is how, by his sovereign work, God can transform sinners from enemies to people who would pursue him over everything. It all comes back to the cross. It's how our salvation was made available. It's how our joy, our true joy, was made manifest to us. That in partaking and savoring Jesus as the living bread, we could have eternal life with God. So, in closing, I have two exhortations. If you're here and you're not a believer, my exhortation to you is taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The wrath of God justly and rightly hangs over those who would exchange his glory for things that do not satisfy. And outside of Christ, every one of us pursues lesser things in worship. We value things that have no real value when we value them over Christ. He gave up his body as blood, in blood broken and shed that you may have true life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Second exhortation, if you are here as a believer, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Don't be swayed and seduced by all the things that the world is clamoring at you that would be worth partaking in, that it would actually satisfy because it will only leave you disappointed and crushed under the weight of that disappointment because whoever draws from that well will have to keep drawing because they will be continuously thirsty. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Pursue the joy that is yours in Christ. Make that your vocation. Make that your life's pursuit. Because there is true life. There is true joy. Anything else will only leave you disappointed. still in search of true joy. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the true bread. We thank you for your grace and mercy to us sinners. We thank you that joy is not a selfish thing when it is to be pursued and found in you. That eternal life in you is given to us and that eternal life is fellowship with your Son. We ask that you would that you would open our eyes greater and wider, that we would see that Jesus is that much more awesome, that as we go about our daily activities, that we would not give in the temptation to pursue anything less than the weight of glory in you, and that we would be daily partaking of the bread of God that we would be daily tasting and seeing that you are good. We thank you. We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.